0: Amen. Last week, we began a brand new study in the book of First uh, Timothy, entitled Foundations. And Paul told us right from the beginning, really, in, in, actually, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and 15, he told us there exactly why he was writing this letter to both Timothy and as well as the whole church there at Ephesus. And he, he wrote this, he, said, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things To you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So, according to Paul, there's a way that we are supposed to behave in God's house. He's saying that when you come to faith in Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, Uh, when we are adopted as sons and daughters of him and and we become a part of the church or as he refers to as a part of God's household, then the Bible teaches us that there are certain ways that you and I are expected to behave. Uh, In in other words, there are certain things uh, that we are to do. There are certain ways in which we are supposed to treat and to care for one another Uh, We we realize that there are are certain ways in which the church is supposed to function. Last week we said the church is not a place to freestyle for everybody to do what is right in their own eyes and to function as a church in the way they think would benefit them the most. Instead, we are to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to submit ourselves uh, to the instructions in which he is so carefully recorded for us in his word. And this book, written by Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is filled with instructions on how you and I ought to behave. And one of the things that we talked about is, look, we certainly want to grow. And God's been very good to us in that way, numerically. We want to see Folks, come to faith in Christ. We want to see people grow deep in the relationship with God. But we want to make sure that the church and what is happening is healthy. Amen? We want it to be healthy growth. And, and one of the ways that that happens is that health of any church largely depends on its willingness to submit to Jesus and through the teachings that we find like this that we see in his word and um, in, in how we submit to it. And so he teaches us and gives us instructions on all different types of things. Uh, within it, he teaches us about that there are specific roles for men and women in corporate worship. He, he teaches us that there are qualifications and roles of elders and deacons. There's instructions on how we are to care for the people within the body itself. Uh, there's even instructions on what our attitudes ought to be concerning money and material things. But it's interesting to me that where he begins, and usually you begin on something you really want to drive home, and what he wants us to get to know more than anything else is a way to be a healthy church is to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's going to come up time and time again, but he begins with this. If we lose the gospel, if the waters of the gospel become muddied, we lose everything, that is, that we have nothing any longer to say. We have nothing any more to proclaim. Do you know that that's everything we do surrounds with the gospel? In other words, we're even preaching people to the gospel, that is, teaching people, encouraging people, pleading with people to come to faith and to repent and place their whole faith on the completed work of Jesus Christ, or what else are we doing After salvation, then we're calling each individual to live in light of the reality and the truth of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Without the gospel, nothing makes sense. The word of God doesn't make sense. These instructions don't make sense. Uh, To to not understand the gospel uh, means that you and I have no understanding of why in the world God would have specific roles for men and women in the church. It it makes no sense uh, for us to have uh, elders and the qualifications for elders and deacons within the church. None of it makes sense apart from the gospel. If you hear nothing else, the whole point of the message is this. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, above all else, must defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell us how to do that in two specific ways. Now, here's what you're going to like. The first point is really long, all right? You're not going to like that part. But what's great is once the first point's over, the second one goes really fast. For you who just sit there and go, okay, is it almost over? That's when you know it's almost over, right? And so we're going to look into this. And he gives us two very specific ways that, that we are to defend this faith of the gospel. First of all, we defend the faith by not adding to it. We defend the the, the truth of God's word of the gospel by not adding to it. Now, follow along with me in your word, in in God's word. Look at verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine." So apparently, here's what's going on. Paul, when he was back in Ephesus and he was about to leave, he has to encourage, he has to urge uh, Timothy to be able to stay in, this, in the church. Now now five years later, after him encouraging him to stay and after he left, he's now writing again and he's encouraging, encouraging him and urging him once again to remain in that place. Now the fact that he has to urge him not once but twice tells us something. It tells us that he was a little bit reluctant to be able to stay in this church for some apparent reason. And, and what we find is, we find out that his reluctance most likely stem from what it is that he's be, be, being commanded by Paul to do. Paul tells him that he needs to remain there so that he may, notice the next sentence, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So back in the book of Acts chapter 20, we see kind of the context of which all this was written. And Paul had told uh, his people, he said, listen, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, 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 I'm going to leave and I'm going to keep propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when I do, the moment I do, ravenous wolves are going to come in. And when these ravenous wolves come in, they are going to be false teachers that are going to come from outside of the church, into the church, and they're going to be raised up within. And now five years later, this is exactly what is happening with the church. False teachers have infiltrated, and they're teaching a false gospel and things that are not true. And now Paul gives him the responsibility. He says, "I I charge you. I want you to charge them. That is specifically, I want you to command them is what he tells them to do what? To no longer teach these heretical things. Now that's hard enough to do, all right, to be able to confront somebody about their false doctrines. But I think there's something about his makeup that made this even more difficult for him. And, and let me explain that. Throughout the reading of first and second Timothy, we find out that Timothy is, is, is young. He's a young pastor. He's, he's, some believe he's in his early 30s. Some believe in the middle to late 30s. We're not really sure, but the truth is during that day, if you were in your 30s, and in this day, if you're over 30, 30s sound really good, right? Uh, they sound really young. And so there, he's young, and so he would have been a little bit inexperienced would have known exactly how to be able to deal with the people within God's church. And so, so now he's, he's worried because he has to confront men in the church that are actually older than him, who have more experience than him. And this is a terrifying thing for him, especially because he's in a culture which requires great respect for those who are of older age. There's another reason why he's probably a little bit worried about doing this, and that is because by his nature, he's shy and he's timid. He has a timid Personality. And, and we see this all the way through these letters again. Timothy seems to be um, demonstrated his continual need to be encouraged and reassured by Paul. So Paul will write things like this. And in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1:7, Paul reminds Timothy that God did not give him a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Why does he have to remind him of that? Because Timothy has and struggles with a spirit of fear. So here you have a young man, he's shy by nature, and finally, he's a little bit physically frail. He's struggling from some kind of physical ailment, either his stomach's messed up, something with his digestive system, so much so that Paul finally tells him in chapter five and verse 32 of 1 Timothy, he says, hey, listen, drink a little bit of wine with your water. The water's making you sick. There's all kinds of living things in there. You need to kill it. You need to sterilize it. So put some wine in there to be able to purify it so your stomach is okay. So here's what we have. When you sum it all up, we have a young and inexperienced guy He's shy, and he's timid, and he's fr- he's physically frail. And so he doesn't want to, he's, he's struggling with doing what it is that Paul says. So he's got to be encouraged. But I think there's something else. I think the nature of these men, these are not easy men to confront. Not only are they older, but in verse 7, follow along with me. It says, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assumptions. Look, there's only one terrible... These guys are ignorant. In other words, they want to be a teacher. They're teaching, but they're ignorant. They don't know what it is that they talk about. And the only worst thing about being uh, 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 really ignorant is being a confident, arrogant, ignorant individual, right? And so they don't know what they're talking about, but they're really confident in what they're saying. And so this is what they have to come up against, And so here's what they're doing. I think all of those things are why he's a little bit nervous about confronting these people within the church. But I think there might be one more thing, and that is that Timothy's normal. And what I mean by that is he's normal and he's godly. Normal, godly people, I want to make sure we all understand this, don't normally like confrontation. Confrontation. Did y'all hear that? All right. So, if you're one of those that are like, man, I love confrontation. I love getting pe- in people's face. I love telling them the truth. That is not normal, godly behavior. We, we understand. I'm trying to protect myself here. All right. And so, that's well, not normal, godly behavior. I'm just trying to lay it out very clearly. Right, Pastor? Are we got a pastor here. That's not normal, godly behavior. In fact, the Word of God is co- telling us constantly to strive for peace. In fact, the Bible says, as as long as you are able, as long as it is up to you, try to maintain peace with all men. The Bible teaches us time and time again throughout the scriptures that that we are to flee any kind of conflict, to to not stir up conflict and division within the church. James tells us a good reason why. He says the reason that there's contentions and arguments and and divisions in the church is because, and he simply says it in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, you desire and you do not have the reason that people within the church are so divisive and they're arguing and they're bickering amongst each other is because they want something and others won't give it give what it is that they want so what do they do he says you murder and you fight and you divide amongst yourselves and so here's what he's ultimately communicating so we know we we know that there needs to be long suffering in the church amen anybody need long suffering from those around us The Bible teaches us that we need to be uh, forgiving and forbearing. You know what that means? To forgive when people have wronged us in the church and forbear as they continue to wrong us within the church. These are things that we have to do if there's ever going to be any type of peace, harmony, and unity within the church. And so he says that we need to strive for this, but there's one area that he says there's a time to draw the line. There is a time that you and I need to be able to speak up. There is a time that you and I can no longer remain silent. There is an appropriate time that we go ahead and we speak up and we defend. And that is when people are messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they are teaching a false gospel. And this is what he does. In, in 2 Corinthians eleven four, 4, he, he rebukes the Corinthians. He rebukes the Corinthians because they're not standing up for truth. He writes this. He says, for if someone comes and he claims another Jesus than the one who was proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one that you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, he says, I told you not to do these things, but you did. People came preaching other gospels, and you received it, and you accepted it, and you did it readily. And so he condemns them for not stepping up for the truth, standing up for the truth, and defending the truth by not confronting those that were teaching a false gospel in the church. Look, Paul allows no excuses for Timothy and no excuses for you and I not to hold and stand and defend truth or to stand by what others teach or promote any different doctrine is what he says. And what does it mean, any different doctrine? He simply means anything that is inconsistent with the teaching that we've received in in the word of God from Genesis to the book of Revelation. We call it the the completion or the, the full canon, the completed canon of God. It's God's word. It's how he has revealed his truth to us. And in the word of God, what he does is he says, within this book, there's everything you need for life and for godliness. So it's where our focus ultimately needs to be. He gives a command in a similar way to Jude, in Jude verse three. In Jude Jude three, he writes these words. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend, listen, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does he mean by that? When he speaks of faith, he's not talking about a feeling. He's not talking about us placing our faith in Christ and saving faith in Christ. What he's talking about is he's talking about the truth that was delivered to the saints once and for all. He's speaking of the scriptures that was passed down by the prophets, by the apostles, and by their close associates. He said, if you want to contend, if you want to fight, if if there's going to be a time for you to speak up, is there something that you need to be able to take up a cause for? It's not because they're changing the color of the carpet. It's because somebody is teaching a false gospel. That's when you need to be able to speak up. This is a command. Remember, in life, this is what a healthy church is all about. When I was in a previous church, I, um, you know what it is because I've only been in one other one, so, um, um, but when I was in North Carolina, it was interesting. When I got there, I realized that this church that I was in really didn't like another church in the community. Great animosity towards this church, and I couldn't really figure it out at first, and I was kind of like, so why can't we get together with this other church? What, what, what's going on? And they go, well, the problem is is they use drums. They use drums? They're like, yeah, drums. And then, of course, on my list as a new pastor, is like, strike the drums. We won't put drums up there, or we're not going to get drums. But we, we, they have drums, and they have electric guitars, and we just completely disagree, think that's completely against the Spirit of God. And I'm like, uh, okay, all right, we'll, we'll work on that a little bit. Now, what's more disturbing about that is the fact that um, really what the church was doing is the largest church in the community, and what they were really guilty of was preaching a false gospel. They were preaching baptismal regeneration, which means they were preaching that in order for somebody to have to be, to be born again, they have to not only repent and place their faith in Christ, but, but baptism is required for salvation, not a demonstration of following and obedience to God after salvation. And so here you have it. And when I confronted them and asked them, and said, well, don't you understand that the bigger threat, the bigger problem is that they're preaching a false gospel? And you know the response? Well, that's just a different interpretation than what we ultimately have. But where we're really angry is the fact that they have drums, right? So this is so messed up. This is so completely backwards to everything that Paul says that a healthy church is ultimately to be about. Now the question is, who were these teachers? Well, Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us any names, and I have to think that if they ended up repenting, right, after being confronted with Timothy, that they were probably thankful to Paul not to put their names in the Bible, that they were causing strife within the church, but he only refers to them simply as certain peoples, certain peoples, and you have to believe that Timothy probably, as soon as he said certain peoples, don't you know that he knew exactly who Paul was referring to, and this is what he says. He says, this is what, he doesn't tell us who they are, but he tells them what they were doing. And in verse 4, pick up from there. He says, he says, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. He's saying, don't allow them to do this anymore, which means that, once again, they were doing it. But what does it mean specifically that they were devoting themselves to myths and to endless genealogies? Well, within the context, we understand that this was a Greek culture. And within that Greek culture, what would ultimately happen? In the Greek culture, they believe, and some commentators would suggest, that they're actually going after Greek mythology. I mean, that was the culture in which they were. It was Greek. In fact, the city of Ephesus was actually the capital or the home of the temple of of Diana. And so people think this is what he's talking about. But when we get more into the word and understand the context, we understand it has nothing to do with, with Greek mythology, but rather a kind of mythology that raised up through Judaism. And how do we know this? Well, one is because of what he writes in the book of Titus. In the book of Titus, Paul instructs Titus to rebuke those that were devoting themselves to Jewish myths. So what is this all about? Simply this. There were people during that time that were taking other books that were not the word of God, and the extra-biblical books, and they were elevating them to the same authority as God's word and they began to teach out of it, and they began to teach from it, and they begin to use it and to be able to trump the authority of God's word itself. And the, what, what some of these books would do is he talks about, they speak of endless uh, genealogies. Here's what they would do you know what a genealogy is in the Old Testament, right? We get to the Old Testament, and there's long lists of names that tell us who was related to Hugu and who begat who. Now, there's a purpose in the Old Testament for that. And the purpose for the listing of those those genealogies is to drive you and I crazy and a preacher crazy when he has to read them, all right? Because they're so hard to read. The real purpose of him providing those things is to demonstrate the faithfulness of God. Because God had promised his people that he would send a redeemer. He would send a seed from Abraham, right? From Abraham, he would send a deliverer that would one day come. And the reason that he lists all those names is not because those are upstanding, faithful people, but because God is faithful to do what he said that he would ultimately do, and that is to bring a savior from the people of Abraham himself. But guess what this group of people decided to do? They decided to take each name and create their own new story for each one of these characters. The Bible didn't teach us who they were, just gave the name and they began to write all kinds of interesting things about them and they began to tell all kinds of fascinating stories and you can imagine what ultimately happened. It began to lead people astray. And not only, listen, not only just young people who, who, weren't, who weren't committed and grounded in their faith, who were being shifted back and forth by every wind of doctrine, but these were people at the same time who had been in the church for a long period of time, knew a whole bunch, but the truth of the matter is is that truth was never truly in them. And they begin to, get shift, they begin to shift away. I, if I could give you any warning this morning, it would be this, is be very, very careful on your desire for that which is new. There are people within the church, you know, people judge preaching on whether they hear something new. Did you guys know that? You're like, yeah, that's how I judge it. Yeah, that's, people will come afterwards, and and I can tell, I can tell when it's coming, they'll they'll come and sit there and go, well, you know, and this will be said, "Um, um, well, you you didn't really say anything that I've never heard before. And so you could tell they're almost like disappointed. They're like, I give you two. All right, I'll give you two. That's it. Just kind of move on. It's all right. And then you get people who come up and they're like, dude, I've never heard that before. I cannot wait to Facebook this. You know, and they're, they're just all excited or whatever those things is, Facebooky and all that other kind of stuff. And we're going we're gonna to all send it out. And, and, and so what happens is people, when, when you are so interested on what is new and, and, and what, is, what is more relevant and all these types of things, it draws you away from what we know is true. The desire is not for something new. The desire for you and I and what God's desire is for us is not to reinvent something, but for us to fall in love and our affections to be greater and greater and greater as we continue to remind ourselves of the same biblical truths that God has established in his word. That's his desire for us. And so we, we, we see this and, and be skeptical of that. There, the danger was that the people were being lead, led astray. And those who were not grounded, again, uh, in the word of God were being led astray. I know just a little while ago, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I got permission to be able to tell this story. I had a young man who had invited somebody to church, just like you do. And he said, man, you need to come to our church. We're going through this Old Testament book a couple weeks ago, or or we're going through um, the Mercy Hill uh, series. And as we were going through it, he said, man, you just need to come. You need to come hear the gospel. You need to come hear the truth. And and he came. And that, that week, he goes, hey, man, this is him, you know, without him knowing, kind of one of these things. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went up and met him afterwards. And uh, after the service, uh, they just kind of jetted out. They, they ran. It, it never bodes well on your preaching if people run out of the building after you're done. And uh, I remember him leaving. And so I tried to text him a couple times. It's like, man, how'd it go? Did he, did he connect with, with things? And, and he sat there and he, and he didn't respond. And, uh, and I, go, I go, okay, what's going on? So finally later in the week, he calls me up and says, listen, I gotta come clean. I felt bad. I didn't wanna hurt your feelings. Uh, the guy hated it. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I'm like, well, that's not the first time. So, so what happened? What was the, what was the problem? And he goes, he goes, his first response, he tried to be cordial, but he just kind of said, hey, you know, he really didn't teach anything that I didn't already know. And then, and then he said this. He goes, really, to be honest with you, I don't think he said anything else other than what the text of Scripture said. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'm, I'm good with that. Look, I've made my living all right, uh, my, my, my living off of stealing from the word of God, out of plagiarizing for the word of God. I'm not trying to invent anything. Uh, I'm trying to, so, so this, where he sits there, my buddy uh, in this church is sitting there going, I don't want him, I'm sorry he said this, that all you did was preach the word of God, and I'm like, Praise God. Thank you, that's exactly what I wanted to do. My heart really is elevated by Charles Spurgeon when he writes this. He says, I am content to live and to die as a mere repeater of scriptural truth, as a person who has thought out nothing and invented nothing, as one who never thought invention to be uh, uh, any part of his calling, but who concluded that he was simply to be the mouth for God to people, uh, morning, uh, morning, that anything of his own should come between you and I, God's people are not inventors of truth. We are stewards of truth. That's what we do. It's, what do you do? Just stick to the book. I I don't know. I I appreciate uh, topical preaching uh, with with guys that do it well. I'm I'm certainly not the one that says that it's not biblical. It can be done in a very biblical way. I just got to tell you from me, I have nothing to say unless I'm in the text. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not talented enough. If I'm not anchored within the word, then I don't know where to go. And, I, and that's not boasting, that's, that's weakness. But if you have a weakness, that's the weakness I'm glad I have. It's because we're in the word of God. And so, so, so what do we to understand all of this to be? Well, this, this truth and this desire to preach only the word of God and not invent, apparently, even at that time, was not the case. Throughout history, there has always been people rising up to try to take certain writings and certain ancient scriptures and to rise them at the same level of the word of God and the same authority, for example, in this particular case, most theologians believe that they were referring to a book called the Book of Jubilees, which was written in 125 uh, B.C., before, before the, the coming of Christ, and, and, and so, so that they were looking at this, and they were looking at these stories. Or they may be referring to a story that came afterwards, which was ultimately written another book, another source, which was the Antiquities of Philo, which was written in 70 A.D., Now, we're not real familiar with those books, and so I'm not going to bore you with the specifics of them, but there are other books that I think that you might be more aware of. For example, the collection of the Apocrypha, or the Book of Mormon, or the Gospel of Thomas, which was used during the Jesus Seminar, which was a bunch of heresy that began to be spread. And they began to go around going, these are secrets of Jesus never revealed to us in the Word of God. And what was it? It was a bunch of myths. There's a bunch of misunderstandings. You might be more familiar with the Da Vinci Code. Woo, rock on, Da Vinci Code. It was amazing to me how many people were shipwrecked by the Da Vinci Code within the Church of God. How many people were sitting back going, man, man, I'm learning stuff about Jesus I've never learned before. And I said, don't, don't. Well, do you believe all this stuff? No. They go, they go, why don't you believe this stuff? I said, because this isn't new. This has been around since the time of Christ. In fact, if you know your church history, you know that within the first, first 400 years, everything that this thing is teaching was condemned by the four, first four church councils in the first 400 years. This isn't new. This is just drumming up more lies that are inconsistent with the teaching of God's word. Now, for some of you, and you may not like this, and I'm, I'm just being I want to be gentle with it, but there's a whole new group of books that people really adore, at least at one time, the Left Behind series. Oh, now, now wait a minute, preacher. All right, yeah, I, I get it. The Left Behind series. But I want to, I'll let you know, I, I'm not putting it at the same level as these other books, but, but because I don't think the authors intended it to be. In fact, the authors, I believe, are, are believe, you know, believers in Christ. Their intention was to sell books. Their intention primarily was to give this, this fictional account of what the end times might ultimately be. We, we get that, fictional. That's, it's not real, it's, it's made up. But what, what happened? I mean, I knew people that had the leather-bound editions up on, uh, and they're all worn out far more than their Bible. Every time there's a hiccup in the Middle East, what do they do? Where are we at the end times? And I think it's volume seven. I think it's in volume eight. Let's see what's going on. If, if you were alive in the 80s, if you were alive in the 80s, you know, especially at the latter part of the 80s, you know very well that, that, that the main thing, the popular thing to teach on and to know about was eschatology, right? The, the time of end times. Why? Because of an introduction, uh, introduction of a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. Anybody ever hear that? Never heard it? You weren't a believer in the time. All right, so I was, and as a kid, as a teenager, I bought the book with my own money. I'm like, well, Jesus is coming back. I want to, you know, kind of know what's going on here. And he was very specific between September 11th and September 13th. So I had that circled on my calendar. And so I began to listen. Now, here's what happened. The church we were at, not a great church, church we were at, the pastor used to begin to preach the book, that book. In our small groups, we used to break out. And you know what it did? It did the same exact thing here. There was no spiritual growth. You know, all there was was speculation, and even in studying the times, the end times, as important as they are, they certainly have their place. But when people spend too much time and emphasize on these things, you are bound to begin to speculate what the truths are and what they're going to be like. You know what we speculated about? Who the Antichrist was going to be. And we had figured it out at the time. Mikhail Gorbachev from Russia. We knew it was him. Sunday school teachers, parents, letting us know that he's the one. And the way that you know is because he has the mark of the beast on his forehead. If you guys had ever seen Mikhail Gorbachev, you know who he is. And I remember them sitting there, no matter what you do, don't take that mark. And I was a kid going, dude, I'm not putting that ugly thing on my head. Don't worry about it. it has nothing to do with my love of Jesus, but I'm not having that crazy thing on my head. All right. Then I had hair, and it would cover it. But now you understand. And so, so, so this, is, this is what people do. They, they get shifted. I remember sitting there one particular time. There was, always, there was this girl that I thought was so crazy at the time because I didn't know any better. And she would always object to things and try to encourage the group. And now, in hindsight, I'm like, she might have been the only believer in that place. Because I remember at one point, I mean, all what we were being instructed with is how to prepare. How do you prepare for the end times? Well, you have to dig a tunnel. And you have to get the best bomb shelter you could get built up. And this is how much money you're gonna need and how many supplies and how much medication that you're gonna get. So this is what we're doing as churches in small groups. We're preparing for the end time. And this poor, sweet little girl, over the time where I'm just, I felt so bad for her, she sits there and says, I understand, and maybe this is all true, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but if it is true, shouldn't we be preparing in a completely different way? Shouldn't we be sharing everybody that know the gospel of Jesus Christ so that if the end comes, they will be prepared and they won't spend eternity in hell and then there's that awkward silence when everyone's looking at her like she's crazy. And they're like, so back to tuna. Uh, you know, back to tuna and what kind of tuna you should keep. You know, and nobody wanted to listen to it, but it's certainly true. But do you see what's happening? It's distracting from what? The truth of God's word. What is important? There are many times, and and, and I want to share this in celebration. I know that there's this tension for me in my heart because I want to give what people want to give. And we have series on finance, and we have series on on, on marriage, and we have series on those things. But I want to let you know, everybody seems to want those to be preached on all the time. There's not enough material to preach on it all the time. People want to come, and they want to go, this is it. If you take all the teaching about marriage in the Bible, you've got a couple pages, that's it. That's all you have for that. But yet the culture in which we live is like, come on, give us more, give us more, give us more. So for a required to be able to satisfy the listener, what do people have to do? They have to read all kinds of extra biblical books to be able to come and preach a lot of extra biblical stuff. I'm not suggesting that it's not good. I'm ex- not, not, not suggesting that it's not helpful or that it's even not true. But this is what Paul is going to command Timothy in second command th- th- Timothy, is not to preach good stuff, but to preach God's stuff. Preach the word in season and out of season. Why? Because man's word does not save, man's word does not transform the heart, only the preaching of the gospel and the word of God is able to do that. Yes? That's it. And so what do we do? We don't want to sit back and we don't want to focus on things that are are extra. We just want to get into the word. We want to jump into the word. We we, We want to have passion for the word and the truth of God. So how do we defend the truth? We defend the truth by not adding to it. Let me give you a second point very quickly. Second thing we want to do, second way we defend the truth of the gospel is we defend it in love. Because I could tell already, and, and this is this is my my idea the idea of confronting is doesn't seem loving, doesn't seem caring. Seems very uncomfortable to be able to charge people. You've got this sweet lady that's been teaching Sunday school for 20 years, and you've got to go and, and tell her, you know, hey, listen, you, you can't do this. And it seems to be so divisive. It seems to be so divisive. And so he tells us what the motivation behind this is. And I think the motivation to this is absolutely key to defending the truth. It's not just not adding to it, but it's also when you're confronting it, how to be able to do it. And we see it in verse 5. Uh, look what he says. He says, The aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He's trying to make sure that they understand that this motivation for the truth and the holding of the truth, that it comes from all the right motivations. But there's nothing selfish or self-centered or self-promoting in it. But instead, he does it because of their love. Out of Love is driving them. What love for? First of all, the love of God. It should bother you when you hear things that are untrue about God. It should impact you. It should bother you. Now, we have to know how to react with that. But when there are people who are spouting things about who God is and people are saying what God will do and what, not, what God will not do, and it's inconsistent with what we read in the Word of God, there should be something that stirs you up there. Why? Because they're talking about your God. And, and, and it's a completely misconception of who that God is. And you know how wonderful and glorious he is. And you want people to see him for who he is. This isn't my illustration. I've said it before. There we go. You're in a place for a long time. You got to repeat them, okay? So here we go. Um, you know that Matt Chandler, this illustration, he uses it of his wife. I'm going to use it for mine because it'd be awkward if I used it of his. Um, so let me, let me just say this with, with, with my wife. And, and uh, you guys know Larissa. And um, if, if, I'm, if I get done, today, and I go home, and and I see her, and she's cooking for the kids, kind of doing her thing, and I go, baby, you're so beautiful. You amaze me. Look at you. That baby drool on your shoulder, and food, no, not, not that, but I sit there, and I begin to describe her, and I begin to sit there, and I say, man, honey, your blonde hair is so gorgeous. Your blue eyes are piercing like the radiant sea, it's, it's so, that, that short bobbed cut that you have is just, um mm, just un, un, unbelievable. You truly are the love of my life. Now, that sounds all sweet if you don't know my wife. You know my wife, she doesn't have short blonde hair with blue eyes. She has very long hair, right? So long that her maiden name was Hair, literally, <laughs> Larissa Hair, and so with a name like that, you've got to have hair. Good thing my name wasn't that. And so, so, she, so she has this, this hair, right? And so, so, so if I were to do all this thing, she might, it may just not mean as much to her because she's thinking to myself, what have you been up to? Who, who are you seeing? This is, you're, you're not describing me. And we have a God who wants to be loved for who he is, not who you and I think he is or who we want him to be. And the only way to know who he is is through the clear teaching and the understanding of the word of God. We teach the word, we defend the word. Why? Because of love for him. The second thing, and that is to defend the truth for the love of people. And this is one of the most difficult things because we live in a world of hate speech. You say anything about anything, anybody else, or you disagree with the way that they ultimately live their life, especially if you are religious and you're all about the Word of God and you say that God doesn't want this or He doesn't desire this, then that is hate speech. You hate that person. But there's a different, completely different type of hate speech, and that is to remain silent with the truth and say nothing as people are perishing and falling into the depths of hell and eternal hell. That's hate speech. It's hate speech when there's sin in someone's life or, or they're teaching something or they're believing something wrong, and you and I don't go in love to them and to begin to talk with them and be able to say, Brother, this is, this is not right. This is not what God has for you. And, and let me explain this. For many of you parents, you're, you're, you're trying to maybe talk to your children or you're talking to other people in love, and it is loving to tell the truth. Are, are you with me say, say amen it's loving on the field of truth and, and and let me say this but no matter how loving you say it there are many that will never receive it as love never receive it as love and, and that brings me to the next thing defending the truth in a loving way in a loving way we do it for the love of god we do it for the love of people but we also do it in a loving way sometimes how you say things is important as what you say things would you agree and so this is what we don't want. We don't want in small groups somebody to misspeak and go, "Liar." All right, we don't want that kind of response. We, we understand that, that sometimes, even with me preaching, there's so many words coming out of my mouth and not being a very bright guy, I'm, a, I'm bound to get something wrong, right? You know, there are times that people will come up and, and look, if you've done this, it's OK, I love you, I love you, but I'm going to tell on you." Um, and, and, and this is what I mean is, is sometimes I'll, I'll sit back and I'll have conversations with people. And they'll go, well, you better believe. I don't know why. I'm not sure why people are, are, are like, uh, letting me know this. But they'll come up and they go, I just want to let you know, we really appreciate the preaching. But if there's ever a time that you get off, I will be the first one to let you know. That does nothing for me, all right? That does nothing for me. It's not encouraging. That's not helpful to me. Uh, it, it's really not. Because it seems like it's so arrogant. Here's what I know. True knowledge of God's word never puffs up. It always humbles. And it is never done out of a lack of love. It's always done in love for the care of God and for the care of the person that you are trying to reach and trying to help and trying to change. And it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, let me just say this. If you want to be a healthy church, you've got to be about the gospel. You have to defend it. We have to do it in the ultimate right way. Um, when I was up this last week with uh, Jared and Whitney, See, I got your name right, Tiffany, with the other one. And while we were sitting there and they were kind of showing us around, uh, we got outside of the cafeteria and, um, and my, I turned to the right down this hallway and there was a whole list, all these little like brass nameplates all over the wall. And I was like, Jared, what's, what is all that? And I, I think there were about 420, 430 I think is what I counted. Did I get that number right? You never counted, I'm as spiritual as I am. Um, then anyway, 420, 430, or you didn't have to preach and make an example. So I, I read all that, and Jared told me, he says, those are all the martyrs from the IMB that have given their lives over the last 100 years. And I was really kind of astonished by that. Just reading the last couple of years of people giving their lives for the propagation of the gospel, of guess what, of defending the truth of God's word. And so on the other side of the wall, I see this piece of paper, this handwritten letter, and it's in a frame. And I go, what is that? And he goes, that's a letter of one of the martyrs from 2006, a woman who had given her life. So I all I know about you. I wanted to read. I, to be honest with you, I was kind of uncomfortable. Am I allowed to read this? Am I supposed to go up? Is this morbid to be able to read? What does it say? And he simply said this. It says, dear pastors, it says, you should only be opening this letter in the event of death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I try to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was my expectation. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing into my life and the spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. Then she says, in regards. And remember, she knows she's about to die. Here's what she wants to say. Here's her advice to her pastors. Here's her advice for you and I. Her advice in regards to any service. Keep it small and simple. Yes, simple, underlined, just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, for every eternal gospel. Give glory to Him, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I are called to defend the faith and the gospel. There's something that gets gets you riled up. It's not about a color of a carpet or paint or change or a name change. It's none of those things. And I want to let you know. Just to let you know. People are like, man, did somebody say something? No, nobody has said anything. Nobody's complained. There are times when elders of your church, that we've had to approach people, and we've had to talk with them about false teaching. None of that stuff is going on. But what we want to be able to do is submit ourselves continuously to the word of God. It's much easier for me to prepare you for what might come than to let something come and have not prepared you. So what are we called to do? To be defenders of the truth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, you cannot be a defender of something that is not your own. And I'm gonna ask the musicians to come at this time and let me say this unless you have yourself repented. We've talked a lot about this gospel. What is this gospel? It is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you and I have willfully chosen to do things in our own way, to be able to turn our back on God, to be rebellious against him, and that we are deserving of his wrath for all eternity, separated him in a fiery, literal hell. But God, yet in his love, even though his righteousness had to be met, justice had to be met, He loved us so much that he sends his son to do what? To die on a cross, not only to meet the expectations of righteousness for us, but to pay for the sin that you and I have committed and to wash it away so that we could be unique to God if we repent and we believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ and place our faith in that. So that's what the first call is. You can defend something that is not your own. So the call is for you to come. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come at this time, as soon as we stand. But the second thing is for some of us just to sit back. Some of us need to repent of desiring new things. Some of you have spent way too much time with the shack, with the blood moons. You're getting all this stuff, and you're reading all these things. What you need more than anything is to become an expert in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to repent of that nonsense. We need to give and be trusted, be good stewards of what God has ultimately given us. You know what some of us just need to do? It's just to rejoice in a church that elevates the gospel and holds and preaches and do all we can to submit ourselves to it and thank God for that. Let's stand, let's stand. I'm gonna be down here. Would you respond? I'm gonna pray. Will you respond to the preaching of God's word? Dear Jesus, we love you. We thank you. God, we ask you to move. And I believe you can save people right where they are.